You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Enemy of My Enemy. I am Hody Jones. I'm, I'm Lou. Sam. I'm Sam Whiplinger. <laughs> that, that, this is going well already. That's Lou, that's Sam. <laughs> yeah. They're representing left, right, and center libertarians today, because that's what the show is all about. Today, we're going to talk about UBI, Universal Basic Income. Now, <clears throat> on its face, it seems like an expansion of big government, and in many ways it is. It's the government printing off some more bills, giving it to people. Um, universal Basic Income is specifically a monetary theory, and so thankfully it's very easy for people to understand. It is the Fed, and instead of printing off the money and giving it to the people they usually give it to, well, in, or in addition to giving it to the people they usually give it to, they will also give it to your average citizen, and usually it's something along the lines of, are you a kid or an, are you an adult? They toss around different dollar amounts. It's been experimented with in different countries and different counties, something between $800 a month. Um, if you get another, for, if you get more money from a job, um, there are ways that are debated on how to implement it when you do get a job. So, for example, if I work and I make eight hundred dollars, or I can get UBI for eight hundred dollars, why would I continue to work? In which case, there's some uh, attempts. Uh, Milton Friedman was kind of an example of trying to it, it had some ideas on how to reconcile that balance. Um, perhaps the most Famous of all semi-component uh, proponents of UBI was Friedrich Hayek, one of my favorite guys. Though I don't know, I, I probably have mixed feelings about UBI myself. But he had to say the assurance of a certain minimum income for everyone, or a sort of floor below which nobody need fall, even when he is unable to protect to, to provide for himself, appears not only to be a wholly legitimate protection against a risk common to all, but a necessary part of the great society. So a lot of different ways we can go with this. Lou, I will have you start by giving your feelings about UBI. I am personally pro-UBI. However, um, not in a totally socialist sense. I like to look at the UBI as sort of a stepping stone away from an overbloated welfare state that is bleeding us dry, killing our economy in some some ways and really driving up the amount of money that our government spends specifically on administrative costs. Um, currently, as it stands, the several different programs that we have, whether it's, you know, WIC, uh, food stamps, EBT, things like that. I apologize. My, my dogs are barking at who knows what, um, <laughs> all of these things, you know, the administrative costs are through the roof. It is unreal. And they're very complicated and convoluted systems. And if you get this, you don't get that. And you have to jump through 87 flaming hoops. You know, it's, it's complicated. And, and then it also, the current welfare system as it, as it operates is, um, it's not a hand up, it's a hand out, right? And the minute that you make a dime, they yank it from you. So they keep you in this sort of perpetual state of having to depend on 
those services and that income. And it makes it so difficult for anybody to climb out of a situation and save money, try to buy a house, try to get a better job, take time to study, do anything. Um, so that's why you see a lot of um, a lot of people talk about welfare queens, right? People who just stay on welfare all the time. You can't go anywhere, especially with the current minimum wage. And I know this is really unpopular with a lot of libertarians. And while I don't believe we need to be mandating a specific minimum wage across the board for the entire country. Um, it, you know, the balance between what you get in welfare and then your minimum wage and what is livable, what isn't livable is really, especially depending on where you live, it's very convoluted and you can very quickly have the rug pulled out from under you. If you get a minimum wage job, which doesn't pay you what your welfare may have paid and covered, but all of that's gone. There's not a lot of a stepping stone. Like there are some, um, you know, if you're filing unemployment, but you made a little bit of money this week um, mowing lawns and you report that, then they'll, you know, kind of adjust a little bit, but it's not, the balance isn't there. It doesn't add up, Right. So I would like to see a UBI implemented where, and I don't know what the dollar amount needs to be, right? Because we talk about every citizen, you know, everybody should have this and a certain amount for children and this, that, and the other. But someone in New York City is going to not have the same financial needs as someone in Norman, Oklahoma, or Minot, North Dakota, <laughs> or Walterboro, South Carolina. Like all of these places have such drastically different uh, financial needs and, and their own micro economies. And so there's not a single answer. And I don't know what the number, the magic number should be. And I, I don't pretend to have those answers. However, if we can sort of take everything that we're doing now and move to a UBI, the amount of money that we would save on a federal level administrative cost is like millions upon millions, if not billions of dollars a year. And I think that in and of itself is a lot more fiscally responsible than how we are operating our welfare system today. Um, I think Yang, <laughs> I'm part of the Yang gang, I guess. I think Yang had a really good idea. And while I don't know how fleshed out it was, and he was on to something. And I do believe that a UBI like this is something that can very easily um sort of wrangle in a lot of those federal expenditures. It's, do I think that that needs to be something that goes on and on forever and ever? Probably not. Um, something we're seeing here in Indiana happen, and I, I think all across the country at, at different levels, depending on where you are, um, as they're starting to pull back on the additional federal unemployment benefits and things like that and the extensions, we're seeing a lot of um, lower paying, like minimum wage jobs 
clamoring for employees and nobody wants to work there. And people are saying, you know what? Like, I don't have to work for $7.25 an hour anymore. And I think that pressure being put on those businesses to say, hey, pay me what I'm worth. Pay, you know, pay a living wage is wonderful. And I think that that is something, it, it is an effect of, or, you know, the cause and effect of it, of the unemployment benefits extension that we've had. And it's, it's tough right now, right? It's bumpy and everybody's mad and people aren't making money. And, but I think ultimately it's going to work itself out and what you're going to start seeing. And we already are seeing it is that other like businesses that were once paying lower wages are starting to bump their wages up. Um, I believe around here, there were a couple of fast food restaurants advertising starting at $17 an hour. And that's phenomenal. Um, I think, you know, especially with the cost of living right now, especially right now. And obviously we know inflation is a problem given this whole situation, but we really putting that pressure on businesses to pay a living wage you know, I think we're seeing that as an effect of this extended benefit, which is sort of like a pseudo UBI right now. Um, so I do think there are benefits. Of course, I don't want to see, you know, government handouts to anyone and everyone all the time and just blowing a bunch of money, right? Um, there are definitely benefits. I think, I think in the long run, as a stepping stone, we save a lot of money and we take a lot um, out of the federal government's pockets, which we need to do, and give it back to the people. Those are our tax dollars. I don't want to be spending my tax dollars on God knows what. And I know I mentioned this last time, but things like, you know, grants for studying the sexual habits of ducks on cocaine. Like, why are we spending money on this? Give me a UBI instead. I will use that in my economy locally and stimulate more jobs in the local economy and things like that. Like there are much better ways to use the money that goes, that we pay into the government and get that back. And I, I don't know. I I'm a fan. I'm a big fan of the UBI. All right, Samuel, let's, let's have your thoughts on uh universal basic income. All right. So basically I found out I was going to be on this podcast. What, like an hour ago? Yeah. Yeah. Less, less, L less than an hour ago. And I we thought like it was about ambush. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was about UTI. So I was just kind of, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I just drew some stuff together real quick, but, um, one of the, the main issues with uh, UBI is just the, the most obvious anti-libertarian view, which is, you're going to be forcing people to, at gunpoint, participate in this program. So basically, I mean, you're not just getting money for free. You're taking it from some people and you're giving it to other people. I find that highly unethical. So that's just kind of the first one. But then there's like the, um, is it helpful though? So like if it's helpful, I mean, if I wouldn't be a libertarian if I didn't think it uh, you know, helped with human flourishing and all of that. Uh, so let's see, you're taking money from people who are bad with money and giving it to people are you taking money from people who are good with money and good with wealth creation and giving it to people who are not good with wealth creation. Um, so if I walked into like a third world world country and would just was like, Hey, UBI, everyone gets a thousand dollars. Like it wouldn't work. Um, 
So it's not like some magical wealth creator, but if I do it in America, it would work, but it would cost us a lot. And so what, you know, you got to think of what would it cost us? Um, I, I like to think of two, <laughs> I'm a little disorganized. Okay. I like to think of two, this, uh, the story of um, a guy who needed to get a plane on a plane and he didn't have a ticket. So he asked people and the, person on the microphone asked, is there anyone that would be willing to give up their plane ticket for this person? No one volunteered. So she asked again, she says, uh, would anyone be willing to give up their plane ticket for this person? They just found like a liver transplant for him and he needs to get to the hospital in order to save his life. And of course, everybody volunteered. Um, so the idea is that we do owe each other something, uh, but it doesn't have to be by force. Uh, we can, you know, voluntarily just help each other out. And that's the most efficient way of doing it. I know one time I gave money to a guy on the side of the road and then later I found out on Facebook, like he was just scamming everybody and he did it in several towns and he didn't need any money. And so it occurred to me, like, I should just donate to well-known charities who know what they're doing instead of just giving it to some random person and hoping it works out. I think uh, UBI would be kind of similar to that. Like you're just giving it to the government and hoping that. No, it doesn't really work. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The, the other issue with uh, UBI is it's um, super efficient. Uh, I know it was brought up that it's very inefficient to our current welfare state, which is great because a lot of people don't participate in it. A lot of people, all those hoops and whatnot you have to jump through people avoid it. So there's more people in the labor market creating wealth, making us not a third world country. Um, if you look at, I would rather have people creating wealth as much as possible, giving money to charities and helping people out rather than just having everyone. Uh, well, where was I? I'm not very good at this. Um, oh, you're okay. You're okay. Uh, you talk about the efficiency and giving people money. Right, right. So I'd rather be if once you make it more efficient, then it'll be just easier for everyone to opt into this, and there'll be more people opting into it, and less people on the creating wealth, which means you're going to have less wealth, which means you could just be taking a step back. Um, so I would rather have a more voluntary system. Uh, she also touched on minimum wage. It's the same situation there. If I just walked up to a third world country and was like, hey, everyone gets $15 an hour, like it, it wouldn't work because no, no one would have a job because no one is able to create $15 an hour worth of wealth. All you're doing is you're limiting the people who are, if you say $15 an hour, everyone under that is not going to be able to have a job or they're going to have to consolidate some way and do less of a job. So like if you said $15 an hour at Walmart, you know, maybe they'll have less people ringing you up and more machines, which a lot of people don't like. So you're, you're going to have to cut somewhere. You can't just magically create wealth by declaring it. So that's, that's my two cents. No, I appreciate that. So um, th I think that's a great position because we have one like pretty for one pretty against then i think i'm a bit of both so th this is exactly what we want when we do these type of podcasts <laughs> um so let, let me start by my with my uh pro uh ubi stuff i i here's the thing about um the fed 
Trying to fix it is uh, difficult <laughs> slash impossible when you ever have somebody who has a legal monopoly over a currency. These types of things are going to happen. And trying to fix that monopoly is uh, difficult, but why not at least try? Um, for me, uh, I think what Lou said rings true. It, it is something of a step in the right direction. Yeah, it's not decentralizing all currency, but if these people are going to be printing money anyway, shouldn't they at least be giving it to everybody? Because here's the thing, with every dollar printed, every single human being has their buying power go down. And so... <sighs> If it's going to affect every single human being when you print out a dollar, doesn't it make sense that if you print out a dollar, it then must be given to every single human being that deals with the dollar because you've directly affected their buying power. And that, uh, to me, seems to make the most sense. The other thing is we have no doubt. How does the Fed operate currently? Look, here's the thing with UBI. They're printing out money without UBI. And how does the money enter the system? This isn't even conspiracy. You can look this up, newyorkfed.org. I mean, they, they have it detailed there. How does majority of the money from the Fed enter the system? It enters through big banking partners in the form of a loan. So this is what they do is they print the money out, yes, or electronically add it to the system. They disperse it to the larger banks. These then go to the smaller banks. How do the smaller banks get it? They get a loan from the bigger bank. Okay. How do you then as a person get a loan from the smaller bank or the larger bank? Well, you got to give it in the loan back through them. Here's the problem with the Fed entirely is they have literally all the bills. So if I print $100 and I give it to four different big banks and I ask each of them to give me $26 back, they literally can't do it because I, I had all the money beforehand. I printed all $100. There's not $104 to give back to me, okay? And that's the way the majority, not even just a plurality, that's the way the majority of the money enters the system is through these big loans that is owed back, right? So that is already a problem right off the bat. So then you get to the big banks. What do they do? Well, if they need to make $26 back and they have $25, they have to charge interest and, and, and give out loans where the money is owed back to them. So now instead of them saying, well, I owe $26 back, so I'm gonna, make, I'm, I'm gonna give some money out to my customers, but I'm gonna need $30 back. There's not $30 in the system. I mean, they might get their $30 back because their customers can, but that will come at one of the expense of one of the other banks who gave out $30 and, or who gave out $25 and now cannot get $30. Because like I said before, keep in mind the Fed at the beginning of this, there's not that money to go around. There's a hundred total dollars in the system in this hypothetical that I've created. But this is essentially how it works. Now, who gets hurt the most by this? And that's the individual. Because you are, like, if you have the first access to loan, you're the most likely to be able to pay it off, right? If you say, I took a $25 loan and I owe $26 back, you're more likely to pay that off because all you got to do is find $1 extra to get from one of these other guys, right? This is the competition. And so you're going to say, I'm going to, I have a way, I'm going to compete, I'm going to get that extra dollar back. But who suffers? Well, business suffers because they have to then take out a loan to start their business and owe you that money in the process. Okay. And then 
And so this goes down and down until we get to the individual or the small business owner or what have you. And what do they get? They get fees for their accounts. They get fees for overdraws, which by the way, if we're doing the math here, people have to be overdrawn for this system to work. You, there has to be negative accounts. Not everybody can be positive because the money starts as a net negative. Every bank that got the money, even initially starts off with, in my hypothetical, a negative $1 you know, amount, but ultimately it's negative millions, billions, trillions at this point when we're talking about real life examples. My last part in support of UBI will be that it is it makes no sense. The dollar is supposed to be tied to economic goods, right? What goods does a bank provide? Now they can provide a good or a service, but economics in a very literal sense for those who have taken the course is the distribution the al I'm sorry, the allocation of scarce resources with no alternative uses. That's a very complicated way of saying it's stuff. If a bank's only job is dollars, well, that's not stuff. That can be a, that can be a service they turn it into. But essentially what you've done is you've given money to people who do not provide stuff. And if a dollar is supposed to represent stuff, then these dollars need to be printed out to the people actually producing stuff. That is generally... The people who are who would be most inclined to get UBI. Now, perhaps somebody who is completely out of work, obviously they haven't provided much. But then again, neither have these banks, and we're giving them literally all of the money. So why so why wouldn't we give it to also these people here on the bottom? Or at least people who are providing the good. And I guess this will transfer over into my negative UBI, why I don't like it commentary. Uh, because the thing is, is that it's still not tied to an economic good, even if it's UBI, right? Like the problem here is that it's not, it's still not tying these, the money to actual stuff. It's just giving it to everybody and assuming that everybody is providing some kind of economic positive for society. That's not, that's obviously not what UBI is. It's not what it's designed to do. And it's not something I think we even want banks to do by saying, well, how much did you provide for a society this month? How hard did you work? How, how much did you actually provide? Now on a free banking system, this is kind of how it works. You say, I produce 15 shoes when previously there was nothing. Now there's 15 shoes. You know, previously there was a lump of rubber worth nothing, leather worth nothing, you know, or, or, you know, minimal amounts. And, and a bank would look at it and say, okay, so what has been added to the economy? X dollars have been added to the economy. Okay, we are going to add that to the economy. Obviously, I'm going to be a bigger fan of that system than any other. UBI also will reinforce the idea that the, the dollar is what we need to use. These currencies absolutely 100% need to be competitive. When you start giving everybody money and you force people into a minimum wage, which says you have to operate based on the dollar, why not give them a choice? Why not say, hey, or you can operate on, you know, something else. You know, there needs to be comp competition to the dollar. Cryptocurrency is not a, in a perfect place either right now. Libertarians generally tend to absolutely love cryptocurrency. We gush and gush and gush about it. It's like kind of an Easter egg hunt online as far as like how you actually farm them. So it's not like that's given to people who are actually making things either. But it is a step above what the Fed is doing, which generally is giving it to the wrong people, political allies, big banks, that kind of thing, um, which we kind of which we kind of don't like. And I don't want to reinforce that power through a UBI that forces people to play on that same system that the Fed is currently using and abusing 
to death. Um, ultimately, I understand the point. Uh, this touches on a lot of like very early capitalist and socialist literature. Um, those who are kind of in the know about this will, will kind of recall a time in history when Marx angered all of his fellow socialists by attacking the capitalists. And it's funny to go back in history and find a time when the socialists were like, oh yeah, the capitalists, like we're homies. <laughs> like it's a good, this is a good union that we have. Well, the definition of capitalism has completely changed. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and that is also true. Racism. But, yeah. I mean, we're changing definitions all the time. That's language for it. I mean, that's yeah. just the way it works. We have to language by definition just changes to, I think the definition of a word is always what the majority of the language speakers say that word is. So right. the majority of the, so like, it's hard because like sometimes it's intentional. Like I, that's a tough pill for me to swallow because in the case of Marx, he actually specifically said like things that weren't true about capitalism. His fellow socialists called him out on that. And we're like, dude, the capitalists are our allies and you're kind of like burning them to the ground because we're talking about seizing the means. They're talking about individual ownership over the means. That's kind of the same thing. Like these are cool allies and cool people to hang out with. And Marx was like, no, let's pretend they're big government people who want to steal all of your things. And they're these big corporations. Pyotr Kropotkin, Prudhoe, I mean, all kinds of people called out Marx for, for this like like crap that he was doing. And th so this conversation actually goes all the way back to there. And the reason being is because we're talking about like a base net, like what Hayek was talking about. Like this is a, like, what is the base? Is it okay? Can a capitalist believe in a, a base, a means of saying, hey, I want to take care of everybody. Look, that's fair. But here's the issue is when Hayek's talking about taking care of anybody, he's also using a free banking model and not a monopoly. And that's kind of the the toughest part of all this thing is we're trying to make this monop monopoly do something beneficial artificially by potentially giving it more power in ways that it can exploit it. Ultimately, if we print off more money, what happens to the value of all these dollars? Samuel mentioned it earlier. They go down. And this is just, this is the, this is the nature of buying power. So I guess I'll turn it over to conversation. Lou, uh, obviously you got to lead off and then you're followed by two people who had mixed feelings. So what did you hear? Okay. Um, well, first of all, 15 shoes, Hody, not 14, not 16. Can we talk? It's, it seems, oh yeah, that's right. I probably should have done an even amount of shoes. Huh? <laughs> Sorry, that I just You're being that. I was like, I wrote it down real quick. I was like, oh, that's good. You're I'm being an ableist, you know Lou. Down. What about all the, the one-legged folks out there? You're right. You're Come right. on. <laughs> that's you what I was correct. thinking the whole I time. I apologize. That was very, very <laughs> I didn't. Ableist. I didn't incorrectly do the math or anything. <laughs> <laughs> this is on her. Sam, yeah, was it a right shoe or a left shoe? Right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> 15 left okay. shoes. Um. To, I'm going to sort of go backwards. So I'm going to start with like yeah. the most recent thing. And I know this is a little bit off topic, but I just, I love, I'm a linguistics nerd, right? So I have studied how linguistic nice. evolution happens and things like that. And um, I started off as sort of a lit nerd and a grammar nerd and things like that. And I hadn't really dug into um, the linguistics and, and the mechanics of linguistics, right? And it's so cool. So I used to argue like, no, uh, racism is anybody who doesn't like somebody else for the color of their skin. Well, yeah, it was, right? And then that has evolved to be more specific. It's a semantic evolution in that word. So it, the definition has narrowed. 
right? And same thing with capitalism. Capitalism used to, in a broad sense, mean a free market. However, in our current society and political everything, capitalism and free market are two different things. However, a lot well, okay, to people from the left, capitalism and free market are two different things, right? Because what we live in right now is not fully capitalism. It's not fully socialism. It's sort of this weird amalgamation of all the things, right? And so when people from the left say capitalism, that's what they hear, right? Or all these government-backed or subsidized this or, you know, big banks and this, you know, it's not what they don't think of is the mom and pop shops, the truly free market, right? Like as a lefty, I'm a true anarchist. I would love to live on a commune and like come knock on your door and be like, hey, I have eggs. Hey, could you mow my lawn? Like, you know, that's me. I want to live in a barter system. I don't like if cash stopped being a thing, I would be a happy, happy girl. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, cash is just language, basically. It's right, just, exactly. It's a just, promise. It's an IOU. Yeah, it's like uh, here's a cow and a half for right. your whatever. You know, like because instead of just right. splitting a cow in half, you know, it's right? Just Dollar bills are easier to carry than goats. That that's true. <laughs> or cows in a half. <laughs> I mean, a half a cow. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, so I just I thought that was really really interesting. So I love that topic, and one day I'd love to do like a whole episode on like oh, a list of vocabulary and and that evolution. So let's let's mark that one. My, my brother actually uh, he majored in linguistics, and I actually got that definition from him when I was debating like what capitalism and I think racism. It's funny that you bring those two up because those were the two we talked about. He was like, well, you kind of have to go with the way people are talking about it, and not you do. You know, the hard part about something like capitalism is I think people do like it's not like there's a consensus on the word. No, like, you look it up in the dictionary still, and the di the dictionary dictionary ah. definition I love. It's individual ownership. It specifically says that the government can't be involved with the economy. Like it's like oh sweet, like this is this is a great definition of the word. But how do most like of my lefty friends right. define capitalism? Not that way. It's very I, I, much a government ownership. Sorry, go I've ahead. done it. I've done it a few times where they're like, capitalism is just like racism and all this stuff. And, you know, that's what that's why there was racism back there. And I'm like, well, actually, you can't have slaves in capitalism. I, I felt really smart, but I don't think that anyone really cared. Because no. it's just like, <laughs> if you know what I mean, it's like, oh, there's that one guy commenting that one weird thing. Whatever. Oh, you're the anti-rate. You're the anti-slavery capitalist. You were supposed to be our right winger, Sam. What happened? <laughs> oh, shoot. Dang it. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> <laughs> you went there but, it, but it's like it's like it's it's free trade you can't just have someone not free like it's, it doesn't really work you know i mean right like i yeah like on that topic and i think i see like all these debates and having come from a more right-leaning perspective and now i'm like a hardcore anarchist lefty <laughs> like i I see the miscommunication happening when people are arguing about how terrible capitalism is or how great it is. And the left looks at the right and they're like, you're horrible people. And you just want to like enslave everyone and you're terrible racist in their definition of capitalism. That is absolutely true. And what they believe capitalism to be. And a lot of people on the right who are like, no, it's, I do a job and, 
you pay me for it. I create a good and you pay me for it. Like that's all it should be. It shouldn't be that complicated. They're absolutely right too, based on their definition of the word capitalism. That's the biggest miscommunication, I think, between those two things. And it's tough um, because it's so historical. Like I think it is. As a, like as a capitalist myself, I, I hate the fact that I would let Marx win this by saying like his smear it's saying his smear campaign worked by being like, I lied about what it is and it worked. And I'm just like, I know it's pride, but I just don't like it. I just I, I yeah. No, I I know. It, it's go. frustrating. Yeah. It is hard. And I think, you know, it's going to take time and we will eventually, and it may be 10 years or a hundred years from now, the word capitalist will either be non-existent or it will mean big, ugly, greedy government backing racists. Like that's the only options at this point. <laughs> Well, I think and eventually I'll, everyone will accept that definition. Right. I, I <laughs> and think a this lot argument won't be a thing anymore um, to this extent on this word. However, but I do want to go back to the UBI really quickly. Um, <laughs> Not really quickly. I, that's the name of the show. Go back to UBI. You're good. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. We're, we're talking about UBI. Sorry, yeah. I, I can get on a linguistics tangent. It's fun. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I um Really quick, Sam, I want to, there were a couple of things and, and I'm with you on like the whole, like the government forcing you at gunpoint, right? Right. Um, now, like on taxes, I'm with you, right? If you don't pay your taxes, like we literally force you at gunpoint. Sure. Yeah. But there's never been a single thing the government has given you aside from maybe a vaccine, but we'll talk about that another day. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. That like money like monetary value money they're never going to force you opting out will always be an option when they're giving you money because it's the government True, like but let, they're, let, but they're taking know, my money right through inflation well, we're all, they're already taking our money let's be honest right right so if so, they're going to be taking our money right why not then have them take more? I want it back. Give it back oh, to me. Sure, and if I sure. opt out, then I feel that I have made enough money that the money I've given to the government might be better spent in someone else's pocket. Sure. And so that's if they more of a charitable thing, right? Now that's not to say that like there's a bazillion other things that government spends money on that we don't want to pay taxes for. But so if if the government just prints, you know, infinite amount of money like they normally do what do you think the minimum or the what should the ubi be set at like why not set it at a million dollars no i, mean, I agree just, with you there i just, don't know the magic number and i do right but I my point is a balance okay but why is there a balance like why is it a balance why isn't it one or the other so if, I, if i'm Correctly hearing your point, Sam, it's if you print $800 and give it to everybody, you technically printed $0 and gave it to everybody, right? Because that's the new, that's like the new base, right? Like the. um, Yes. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like there's definitely, I'm not a genius at this stuff, right? Like there are definitely things to be worked out there. Maybe there's a cap. Maybe there's. A fluctuation, the choice to opt out, the because I'm gonna be honest, is someone like Elon Musk with a bajillion dollars 
gonna take a thousand dollars a month from the government <laughs> like he's probably gonna be like nah i'm gonna opt out like that's you know he makes so much money he doesn't care about a thousand dollars a month from the government he also probably gets a lot <coughs> of subsidies from the government but that's a again a different show <laughs> but like on a personal level but i mean it's gonna be super efficient so he'll just get a thousand dollars anyway yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, right. he'll, he'll get it so he's not gonna like tell his accountant hey make sure you don't take that thousand dollars i don't know i don't know exactly you know, how to work. I, but my my point is my point isn't even that it should be zero my my point is is like how are we figuring out the scale like there's got to be some way to figure out whether we should have a universal basic income of like a thousand bucks a month or two thousand bucks a month like what is it if we're basing it off of need then we're going back to like the government taking care of charity which i don't really agree with but if we're basing it back off of just like hey the government should give us some of our money back then it's like well why don't we go to like a million like i don't know i'm no, just and I, I making questions that. really I, I do agree there is a there's a tipping point, right? And I don't know what the number is, but there is a point where helpful becomes exactly what you what you're saying, right? Like there's a balance there. And I don't know what that is. I don't know what that magic number is, and that magic number may change over time. Um hopefully with the end goal being that it goes away. Because we've developed a society that can take care of itself, you know. Um, but when I think about a UBI, I think um, I think about the people in the middle, people like me or you or anybody who's ever <coughs> been like, you know, I'm loaded. I have to work sixty, <laughs> you know, handsome and loaded. <laughs> yeah, right. You Stop guys. hogging everything, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, that you know, at any point in our lives, have you not been like, man, I'm having to work like 50 hours a week and I'm really tired, but I would love to take some time off to go get yes. certified in this mm -hmm. or spend time with my brand new baby because my wife is exhausted, <clears throat> <Yeah. laughs> you know, like that, <laughs> right? Um, like that thousand dollars a month can make the difference for somebody saying hey i've been middle management for 10 years and all i need is seven more credits for my bachelor's and they'll consider me to be vp of my department okay well one thought i would have was that is um people i, I think they've done studies on people who win the lottery like it the average person who wins the lottery is poor again in two years absolutely so so if That's you're talking about give them all that money at once. <laughs> sure. So if you're talking about like, well, let's just give this person some money so that they can get their bachelor's degree. Okay, you're investing in someone. Right. And you're not gonna get on average a good return on that investment as you would like if I invested in Elon Musk. So like if the government decided, I mean this would be stupid, but if the government decided let's give Elon Musk more money, chances are he's gonna take that money and create a lot of wealth. Versus someone who you just gave money to maybe get their bachelor's degree. Um, and as far as like not working sometimes, it's like if you got paid and you just need to take a break and help your wife and all that stuff, that'd be great. I didn't get to do that because I had to make money. So I was constantly. Yeah, because there's not a UBI, silly. Yeah, so I was, <laughs> I was creating wealth. And, you know, the tide raises all ships and, you know, 
uh, it's like the someone was complaining about some poor person, you know, justifiably, uh, just working two shifts at Walmart and living in her car. It's like, well, she's still way better off than like most of the world. Like she has a car, like she's a, she has a job, she has food. I mean, I would never like tell her, be like, hey, you, you got it really good actually. But like, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, like in terrible. perspective, you know. Uh, I would rather live in a a country that values just wealth creation versus a country that doesn't. uh, You know, she wouldn't be living in a car. So, Sam, let me turn this back to you. And then I want to go to Lauren with this new question as well. Because I think that UBI, what it attempts to do is the stuff issue that I mentioned. Obviously, money is subjective. I think we all agree on that, that it's it's, I am the beholder. And at the moment, printing more money is not um, (laughs) making people behold the dollar very well right now. Um, but what, how do we, is there a way to translate this into like what Hayek said to talk about like some kind of bare minimum, like not even just like money, but like, as far as like stuff goes, like, because I think we do want a society that isn't, and and maybe you differ, but like, is the goal to just be strictly utilitarian? Like if you provide wealth now, then you are valuable. Whereas if you are not providing wealth, then you're worthless. Is there any room for saying like, hey, you you aren't providing wealth now, but maybe you might later. And so I should invest in that. Or maybe just even culturally out of the goodness of our hearts saying you should have food because I don't like it when people starve to death. I mean, what, what do yeah, you kind absolutely. of think? What do you think the solution is? Go ahead. So, yeah, I think absolutely. Um, like, But I believe in it being voluntary. So like I said, like I gave money to that guy. I shouldn't have given money to that guy. Uh, I should have just given it to a charity. Uh, there there's far more efficient ways to distribute wealth to people who need it. So that's kind of like, um, like even like a commune, like if you wanted to live on a commune, I think that'd be great. And everyone just sort of lived together and participated together. And, you know, uh, there was a universal basic income, something like that would be great as long as it's voluntary, I guess would be, you know, my position. Okay. I mean, and Lou, I, I want to turn to you, but let me rephrase it a little bit. Cause the, I, the concept is always mutual aid, but that tends to tough, that tends to be tough on people that aren't ready to provide their part of the mutual aid right now. Right. So like, how do we, how do we basically say like, I know you can't help me right now, but I believe you'll be a benefit, maybe not to me, but a society later, I guess. I think that goes back to um, the handout versus the hand up. Right. Um, I spent a lot of time working with uh, United Way and some other like charitable organizations. And that was sort of our, our motto for everything that we did. Everything we did for anybody was intended to be a handout, not, or a hand, I'm sorry. Woo, I messed that up. A <laughs> hand up, not a hand out, right? Um, and I think this is, this ties into my idea that a UBI should not be a permanent solution. Because, as we discussed earlier, you know, your inflation and you're basically at zero all the time. It should not be a permanent solution. Um, maybe it is a – maybe there are qualifiers, right? But not just means-tested qualifiers. Um, and a, temporary solutions, those sort of things. It, There are young adults out there who, you know, married young, had a kid young, but they're really bright. You know, I've, how many times have you heard the story about the like 16 year old girl who got pregnant in high school and it was really sad because she was 
she was like a shoe in for valedictorian and could have had all these scholarships to this, that, and the other college, but she still lives in this, you know, in mom and dad's house raising her kid. Cause she got pregnant at 16 and lost every opportunity she had. That is your prime candidate. Invest in her. Exactly. But n- that's not a realistic thing for an individual or even a small community to do to provide a thousand dollars a month just to keep a roof over your head and food in your belly while you better yourself so you have the time to continue your education to invest in a business you want to start whatever it is I've been that mom. I've been a single mom driving 30 miles to work because I couldn't afford to live in the city I worked in, but I had to live in the city or work in the city to afford the house I had to feed me and my kid, right? And I I, I guess maybe this is why on a personal level that I'm very pro-UBI because I've always been very anti-welfare. Right. I I hate it because I'm super libertarian. I'm like, oh, the government's awful. Right. They are. (laughs) (laughs) I had a moment of silence. I had to use. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. I just like I'm having a moment. But I did. I. I stopped working. I got sick. I was diagnosed with lupus, single and alone. And then an idiot friend totaled my car and I said you know what that's it I'm gonna get HUD housing WIC food stamps SNAP all the things Mm -hmm. and I went back to school and I bettered myself I bought my first house two weeks ago Because I finally just put my hands up and said, I can't get further ahead if I can't step back for a minute and better myself. And I'll tell you, I'm not an outlier. No. I I am every welfare queen that's ever been talked about. Yeah. You're Octoman? She's Octoman. <laughs> I'm Octoman. No, I had one. I'm done. That's it. God love her. No, but I have two amazing stepsons and I love them very much. But thank God I didn't physically give birth to them. <laughs> the one was enough. All right, so, go ahead, Sam. Yeah, Sorry. what I was just going to say is that you should have just pulled yourself up by your bootstraps because I'm a right winger, apparently. No, I'm just ah, yay. <laughs> I'm about to go through this computer. I was working three hours a week. Driving 60 miles a day, right. and I had a baby by myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I would just throw out that uh, Harry Brown quote where you know the government breaks your le- breaks your legs and you know gives what what is the quote again? It's like breaks the your legs, gives you a crutch. breaking legs and giving out crutches. Exactly. Yes. So I mean, if you think of like a if we had a, like no taxes, just even no taxes, like that would have helped you out probably a oh, reasonable yeah. amount. Absolutely. Yeah, no taxes. Um, if we were a wealthier country because we didn't have all this this giant government, all this inflation, all this stuff. Absolutely. So, I mean, basically, you used your crutch. And so I'm proud of you for doing that. It's, you know, I would never tell anyone to not use, like,
my wife uses Wick. Like it's great. Like use whatever you can, get whatever you can from the government because we they broke your legs. Anyway. You might as well use your crutch. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, the go- I mean, government forcibly shut down my business. There's no way I wasn't taking the money that they paid me. Now it's <laughs> yeah. still them creating the problem, but yeah, like I, right. I get that. So I lost what- my job too. <clears throat> Same thing. I've been on unemployment since the pandemic. Yeah. So let me let me. I'm going to throw this around and. Uh, just as a last thing before we head into the break and then get to the peace of my mind segment here. And I guess I'll start by leading with mine, but I just, I just wanted to talk about like what we think the ideal system should be. Cause I think UBI is a lot of times saying like, this is the system that we work with and it's the best that we can do. So like, what is the real solution here? And for me, it is, and this is one of the reasons people have kind of seen a shift in my marketing. I was actually reading a post that I made a, exactly a year ago today to talk about how I was switching from intellectual arguments to emotional arguments. And people are like, well, why? Why are you choosing to be emotional when you could be intellectual about it? I'm like, because honestly, I don't, that's, it's what hits your heart and not what hits your head that a lot of times what people act on. And so like my, my, I have had like a shift and instead of like trying to change things politically, I've tried to change things culturally. And frankly, it's just working. I'm having more success and maybe I shouldn't like, here, here's the thing. I get that. I shouldn't logic should dominate the whole world. Everybody should be a whole bunch of Vulcans and we all just go around and compute all the proper information and just say, you know what, this is what, we need to, this is, this is ideal. This is not ideal. I've done the studies. I've done the analysis. I've done that, but people aren't robots. I'm I'm a Christian and I have examples in the Bible of God acting illogically, calling himself out for acting illogically and being like, okay, that's emotional. I shouldn't, I mean, some examples, I shouldn't kill Moses. I shouldn't wipe out the planet. Like even though they're pissing me off or whatever. And in some, in some ways, God's logic, like made sense, but I'm glad he chose to make the emotional decision, which was being like, but I still love him. Like I still, this is still where I'm at. Like I get Moses deserves to die. All of fall short of the glory of God deserve to die. But that's not why I, I made this whole experiment. Like I made that because I love them and I want them to improve get better. And so that's what I'm going with now, even from a non-Christian perspective, I just, I just use that because it, it's personal to me and a story I can share, but like, ultimately like these emotional parts of us are still very important. And so for me, it's very important to say like, Hey, cause I was once at a time where I was like, UBI is lame. Welfare's lame. All y'all suck. Get better, work better, work hard. It's what I did. It's what they did. You know what I mean? We're all, we all want to be self-made people. And in many ways we can be, I'm not trying to like discourage anybody from becoming that self-made person. I mean, follow your dreams and do what you're good at. Like do what you're designed to do. Heck yeah. Self-made. Well, okay. Well I talk about it. Lord, Lou's living the life over here. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, like being self-made is awesome, but like no, nobody's an Island. And like, we understand we live in these societies where these emotional de- emotional decisions work. So ultimately my solution to this is purely culture and it might sound trite, but when we talk about taking care of each other, there's something that happens when I don't think people will stop being persuaded to move in the direction of UBI, which I mean, frankly, we've almost been doing it for the past year and a half. So like, I I find it to be almost an inevitability at this point, but the reason that that is winning is because people look at their neighbors and say, I don't trust them to take care of me. I don't trust them to take care of me. My boss isn't going to take care of me if things get hard. My family might not even take care of me if things get hard. My community might not take care of me if things get hard. 
And I want to share an example of something. And I know this is a personal experience. Again, your experience may differ. But here in Ogden, Utah, we had uh, we had a homeless crisis, which is just we created a whole bunch of policies with the lockdowns that resulted in some people being homeless. Um, they they made a bunch of tents and they lived in them. And it was actually a choice. In fact, there was some very middle-class people there because they saw what was happening. And they're like, I'm not going to be able to afford my rent anymore. Indeed, they couldn't. I'm not going to be able to afford work anymore. I'm going to live in a tent. We had this area where they did it in. Government came, saw it. And and, uh, their excuses were terrible. They were like, one of the buildings got robbed nearby. We don't know who did it, but it was next to that homeless camp. I mean, this is literally like their their explanation of it. And then I think they said, uh, oh, there was a fire uh, because they they had like a fire to keep warm, right? And the fire department had to come out. They, They didn't explain that the fire was very much contained and these people were keeping warm. They just explained that the fire department had to come out as though they started some kind of like forest fire something stupid right so we had so we had this situation government came destroyed all the tents destroyed all the food made it they actually stopped people from um stopped local voluntary organizations from serving these people food and said or giving out clothing jackets so they said nope we're putting a stop to all that so that's what happened in ogden what did we in the me myself and my libertarian party here in weber county what did we do we provided tents, provided food. We got fundraisers going, and this is what we did. Now, I just looked up at the New York um, New York Times has a thing that says like, "What is my demographic?" Like, you type in your address, and they'll look at your area, and they'll tell you, "Hey, your your average neighbor, you know, you have fifty percent of your neighbors are Republicans, forty percent are Democrats, and ten percent are Independents or Libertarians or something like that." And we are now a we, I think we still could, I mean, this is Utah. We're still like 50% Republican, but we actually have 40% independent since this type of thing happened. And like before this incident, it was something along the lines of like 5%. So people saw what the libertarians did and they said, I know that I will be taken care of. I trust that. And now I know that my neighbors will take care of me. So for me, this whole solution comes from a very much cultural place that you take care of your neighbors, you make them realize that we'll be taken care of, and it erodes their faith in the government or in their faith in or or in a faith in a UBI to say like that is what is going to get me taken care of. That's kind of a long rant, but because that's my last thoughts on the subject, that's just what I wanted to say. That's how that's what I feel the solution is ideally in an ideal world that we all take care of each other and it is very much possible like it's not too hard it it really is one of those things that says i can feed all of the homeless on this dollar amount it involves breaking some laws and the government will try to stop you i admit it we did it like that happens we found housing for them at people's homes and these things are kind of dangerous and i get all that but it made people say this is what i trust this is what i'm going to do Sam, go ahead and give me your thoughts on what's what's your ideal society as far as like instead of U, UBI or I, I mean, I'm assuming instead of UBI, what would you kind of like to see? Yeah, I mean, it'd be pretty simple, uh, similar, uh, just just voluntarism. Um, so like, you know, it goes just back to that plain example where like, you know, everyone, you know, they're like, hey, can uh, this guy needs a ticket to fly and, you know, no one volunteered to give up their ticket. And then later, they're just like, hey, he needs a ticket to fly because he needs a liver transplant. And they found a liver transplant, and he needs it for his life, and everyone volunteers. So there's just this basic subconscious part of us that just wants to help out and be good in that sort of way. 
and I think that's that's the majority of people. Um, I you know America's famous for giving away billions and billions of dollars in charity. Like we're we do very very well at that, and I mean even like donating to the homeless or something like that. Why would you donate to the homeless when we have all these welfare programs and all these systems in place? The fact that we still do that even it's like above and beyond uh, what what's necessary. So, I mean, if, if you just got rid of all of that, the amount of care and the amount of community that would develop uh, would be astounding. I mean, even just like, um, like if you got pregnant at 16, like you might live with your parents for a longer period of time um, because your parents hopefully would step up. So there's like all these different uh, scenarios where, if you're put in that position, people will step up. And I think it's just far more efficient than trying to get the government to uh, intervene and sort of just force people to be good, I guess. I don't know. Sure. Lou, craft us your ideal, whether it's UBI or otherwise, what's your ideal in this situation? Go ahead and get fancy. Fancy. Get fanciful. Dream. You there get to do whatever you want. How do we take care of everything? Cornfields and giant communes. That's as fancy as it gets for me. No, I, I really truly am. You know, I laughed. Um, my husband is, he's an anarchist, but in some ways he's a little more right, which is weird. Um, <laughs> uh, but I said this the other day to him. I said, I'm, I'm not a communist. I'm a commune. Ist. <laughs> communalist. Like, I'm a communalist. I'm a mutualist. I'm a voluntarist, a socialist in that sense. Um, you know, I've always been pretty clear about the fact that yes, I'm very left-leaning so long as there is a government. <laughs> um, a, no government would be the better option for me, right? So n- this wouldn't even have to be a discussion. Um yeah, no, I, I would love for everyone to take care of their neighbor. And, like, I guess that's sort of the catch-22. And I, I brought this up in a, in a previous episode about how, you know, a lot of times you'll hear other leftists make statements about, you know, oh, well, why don't churches let homeless people sleep in the churches, you know? And um, I, I think a lot of what, you know, Hody was saying earlier – um, there's so much more to being a Christian. I'm a Christian super leftist anarchist, which is a super weird thing. I'm I'm kind of an anomaly that way. But I think being a Christian is what makes me such an anarchist. And and a lot of what you know, Hody gets it. <laughs> this, you know, I don't. I think we should all take care of each other and all of these wonderful things. Um, but I'm not a Darwinist either. Like I don't want to pull the rug out from under people. I don't believe that we could just turn the government off. Like there's a light switch and I, we wouldn't fall into absolute chaos until we create an actual true culture of mutualism and voluntarism and helping your fellow neighbor and we get the government out of things like zoning regulations and liability clauses that keep churches who don't have millions in, to spend from housing the homeless 
one when that happens, yeah, we don't need to look at things like a UBI, right? Because the other the other programs we have now, you have welfare for the left, right? Is how the right views it. Because welfare is a program of the left. But corporate welfare is a program for the right. What's the the common denominator there? We can all come together on that. Erase the one and help each other. We don't need the middleman. But until then, everyone should be treated equally, particularly when it comes to the government, the most racist <laughs> institution there is. Awesome. Appreciate your thoughts on that. Viewers, hang around. We're about to give you a piece of our minds minds collectively here in just a minute here so hang on and i'll see you in a second and welcome back everybody peace of my mind segment i will lead this off um do you ever read a book that you just say i can't stop quoting this book and it was it was great when i was reading it but i just use it all the time for me that is uh leo tolstoy tolstoy's the kingdom of god is within you i cannot stop quoting this book. I, I I must have read it two or three years ago and it comes up all the time. It's just one of those that, uh, I, and, and maybe this will be a shorter piece of my mind segment, but I just recommend that I heavily recommend that you read. It is very much designed for, it is designed for people who are religious, um, specifically Christian. And, and you know what, if you're not, then it's probably not your cup of tea because it generally assumes that you believe the words of Christ. And so, okay, so you start there. I am telling you, I don't know how you can read this book and not become an anarchist afterwards. Cause like I was, when I first read the book, I like, I was like kind of like minarchist. And then I read some of that stuff and I was just like, I didn't, I, I wouldn't say I immediately became an anarchist, but it weighed heavily on my heart for like, ever since reading it. And I was like, there's got to be some way to contend with these points here, with these quotes. And there just wasn't. And I, I, I couldn't, I, I, it's one of those that I just, if you need somebody to be an anarchist and you know that they believe in God, absolutely recommend Kingdom of God is Within You. It's on Audible. It's a fantastic listening book. Um, it, it's well-read. Uh, so it, so if you're a books-on-tape kind of person that say, I don't have time to crack open a book and read it, that's cool. Listen on Audible. It's great there, too. I, I, I actually got it on Audible after I got it on tape, uh, uh, in paper because I was just like, I, I, need, I need to hear this again, uh, some of these points. Um, it is very difficult for a Christian to not be an anarchist and protect and believe in their faith and believe in all the teachings specifically of Christ. Um, I understand. And I'm not saying it's, it is impossible. It's just very difficult to do. There's some points that you have to contend with, or at least try to explain away that are very direct. And I I love it. It, it, It's one of those books that made me not only more in touch with like anarchy and the political movement, but made like made me grow as a person of faith as well to say like, I am, I am closer to God today because of these things than I ever was before. Um, We've had a lot of Christian nationalism kind of sneak up on us here in the United States to kind of say, you know, America first. And, and we deal with a lot of things on a nationalist level here in the United States. And there's a lot of Christians that are part of the problem. 
Um, I loved my education at Liberty University. I studied theology. I got to study. It. One of the things that I always say is that I'm so grateful that I got to study Islam with someone who is Muslim and, um, you know, Christians from Christians and Catholic Catholicism from Catholics. And I, I actually studied with the Krishnas when I studied Hinduism. And it was such a fantastic experience to, to learn all those things. But I mean, I can't pretend that the Falwells are not part of the Christian nationalism problem. <laughs> they created a program that is far better than they are. That's for sure. I'm glad to see that Jerry got ousted. And I'm sure that university will improve as a result of that. Um, but like, these are, these are kind of the problems is you get taught these things and they seem Christian just because they're culturally affiliated with it. And it really challenged me to look at these things and say, you know what, why do I believe that God loves America the most? Why do I, why do I believe these things? Why do I, you know, and there's certain things when you study, I'm a theology major. And when you study the Bible or gosh, about any other religious work, you'll come to these conclusions that are going to be vastly different when you just read the text or just study the text. These conclusions are very different than what people around you are preaching. And you just say, I am having a tough time making this sync up with this. I mean, how often do we hear, you know, you know, Christ died for your sins, you know, and, and believe and, you know, you're going to go to hell if you don't. And then over and over again, I believe it's three times the apostles approach Jesus and they say, how do we get into heaven? He says, you get there by not judging other people, by forgiving other people, because that's what's going to measure you as a human being. The stick that is used to me that you use to me measure others will be used to measure you. And you're just like, man, like this is what Jesus said. And all that other stuff is something that somebody else said. Like, what, am, what do I even believe anymore with my faith? And it's just one of those, I think, impactful novels. So I understand that you two may or may not have read the book that's fine but is there any books that have like i guess you can comment on what i said or any other books that you feel like kind of one of those that you like oh man you gotta read this because after i read it i can't stop talking about it sam blue <laughs> yeah. okay. um, so really to to touch on a lot of um what you're yeah, saying god now, did anoint donald i just trump, have sorry. to catch this comment wait so you're saying god didn't anoint donald trump to save america and own the libs of course he did i'm sorry i had to read that comment i don't typically <laughs> see them but this one like popped up right at that moment <laughs> i love i love the memes where thought. it's like donald trump on the cross and like the sun oh a beam of light on him and, uh, it's and so some painter scary. did it right like some painter did it like yeah like it was <laughs> yeah. okay so, i have a collection of all like super red but anyway <laughs> that was fantastic okay hang on i'm trying to get back on track here okay so i think hody you touched on a lot of the reasons why i am an anarchist period and also how being a Christian shaped that and then also how being becoming an anarchist deepened my faith right because I stopped looking towards the church and the man mm -hmm. and the that's gone right and I won't get into any details because I don't know how public you are about some of these things but I, I believe you and I sort of pivoted from one faith to a different similarly yeah. um and i'm guessing we were probably on a very similar journey and I've, i 
I find that really fascinating. I can't, I would love to do a show about it. We'll talk about it for sure. Like we'll go ahead and make that a for sure. We'll talk about it. One yes. Cause it, it's fascinating, but it really did like that evolution shaped my entire personhood as an adult. When I finally was like, okay, this is it. This is what I am. This is who I am. This is how I feel. It is fundamental. It's there's nothing political about my political beliefs. They are yeah. fundamental. It is 100% based in scripture and in my upbringing. Um, you know, every Sunday I was made to go to Sunday school and I hated it, right? But what stuck with me were the lessons that were read to me, not the things that preachers preached at me, their interpretations. And I am so thankful for that because I look now at what sort of the evangelical right. I hate to even say that, right? But it's sad to me because those are my supposed to be my brothers and sisters, and I just hurt because I feel like they've lost their heart. And I always think about the story of the Pharisees and I'm getting super religious, but I did. I mean, I cited a Christian book. That was my yeah, conversation. Yeah, I know. Down. This is down. weird, right? <laughs> um, a super lefty getting like Christian religious. It's so strange. Um, but I can't separate the two. And I could never balance being conservative and a Christian. And I couldn't possibly balance being an atheist. and a, Well, okay, I won't say an atheist and a leftist. That's not. But to have those core values, like without my faith, I wouldn't have those core values of helping my brothers and sisters, helping those who are less fortunate than me. Um, <coughs> all of those things that make me a leftist <laughs> yeah, are I mean, 100% based in scripture. And yeah. I, it, 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 this even extends, I think, beyond Christianity. Uh, Khashoggi got murdered for talking about those parts in the Quran that are like, hey, maybe we're not supposed to be violent with everybody all the time, guys. Yes. I mean, this is this is one of those that, that I, I do feel goes across religious lines. Sorry, Sam, go ahead. All right, I'm going to talk about religion. So, like, great. Uh, so, I'll just start with this uh, quote: uh, "By forcing man to act morally, in reality, would deprive man of the very possibility of being moral. Uh, for no action can be virtuous unless it is freely chosen." Mm -hmm. I just, I, I posted that on my Facebook, and it went nuts for some reason. But I thought it was very like, just like everyone knows this, of course. Like, this yeah, is just totally. common knowledge. And then you know, it just went nuts. So apparently, it was struck a chord with people but i i do think there is something to do with when my my background was i grew up like pentecostal christian speaking in tongues all of that i never spoke in tongues uh, i remember getting prayed on and then like <laughs> the pastor like pushed on me so then like i like fell backwards and then i was like next Been time you <laughs> really nice oh my gosh yeah. and then so then i was like uh next time i'm like i'm not gonna let him push me over I'm like, if, if I fall over, it's it's going to be God. So he's like pushing on me. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, still. <laughs> so that, I, I mean, that was my background. And then like, 
I went, I was homeschooled. So then like I went to Baptist churches for like youth group and that was my only social activity. And, uh, I wasn't allowed to watch uh, the Lion Kings. I mean, I just kind of had a weird, weird background, I think. Um, and then I kind of fell into like, I was talking to a friend of mine and he went to seminary and he kind of had a similar background and he became like Lutheran. I was just like, we hate it. We used to hate Lutherans because I mean, they drink and obviously they're going to hell. And, but, uh, you know, he just kind of, uh, he put it in, a. yeah, he was really good with like theology and he would explain things in a way that wasn't just like this feely type of way. That's like, well, this is how I interpret the Bible. Like that's, that used to be our Bible studies was, well, this is kind of how I would interpret it. This is, you know, what I'm feeling about that. And it's like, I can't do that. I, I hate reading the Bible because it's like I could interpret this a billion different ways. I could spend years on this this one single verse. But um, yeah, my friend, one of the, I guess the impactful things was he just taught me that like, you know, it's it's not like you you get saved and then if you do anything wrong, you're, you're going to hell. Um, so that, that kind of changed my life because he's like, no, Christ died for you for all time. Like he died for you. You're good to go. Like if you want to live uh, a free life, like Paul says, then go do that. Like, don't, I mean, give up sin, not because you're, you're avoiding hell, but just because it's a bad idea. You're a free man. Why would you go back to those chains? Uh, so that had a really big impact on my life, I would say. And then just, yeah, even just taking a break from really being involved in like, like I started, helped start a church and all of this stuff. So, and then there was like a, a break where I just, I wasn't. And so I was able to just, and I had kids and that's how I got involved in politics because I could no longer just play piano for hours. Like I had to hold a baby or this or that. So then it's just like, I'm on my phone, like, oh, universal ways again. Come, Okay. That's interesting. But uh, so then, yeah, I guess, so that's uh, basically, so then I, I kind of took what I learned from politics, which is like I you know, compartmentalized in sort of a separate world. And then I used like the knowledge and the, the, the tools from that and kind of just applied them to Christianity. Um, so then it, that's how I ended up to kind of where I am, I guess. It's so wild because I think we're going to go three for three on this. I very much had my politics and religion separate. You know, I was like, hey, separation of church and state, which I still pretty much believe in. You know, I, I still want, you know, those things. I, I don't want somebody I don't want to enforce, you know, religious things like you mentioned Sam, the, it's force. Force is what makes it, it's not virtuous anymore. And anybody who would use it can say they're doing it for positive means. But I mean, let's be honest here. The people cracking eggs very rarely make omelets. They talk about it a lot, but we see the results. You see the results of involuntary socialism and communism all throughout the world today. It's forces the magic ingredient. There's no problem with being equal. That's not the problem is saying that, oh, we tried to make people too equal. The problem was the force. That was the problem. Like, and so that is like the common denominator there. I talk so much more about my faith now. I mean, even today, I didn't really plan on it too much. I kind of met more, wanted to talk about the book, but it's hard because they're so, I, I am so much more faithful now with my journey with anarchy and then my and then my journey of anarchy has you know has has they the two just drive each other so nicely and and this is not purely a christian thing i did want to stress as well i had a series called creed of the freed we only made it to two episodes because i couldn't get too many people to 
participate in an official capacity because I was looking to official church, uh, religious organizations and I wanted somebody to represent and, and talk. And it's hard when you're talking to, you, you You represent everybody, it's hard to say something wrong. And so I only got a couple of people that were willing to come on the show. But one of them was this, um, um, she she was Hindu and I will, I forget her name and shame on me for doing it, but it's a fantastic episode. If you look it up, it's on the main uh, Chris Bangle show feed called Creed of the Freed. It was, um, and, and just the, the, the way her faith informed her views on liberty were so critical. And I just feel like it's just one of those things that whether you want to be a better person politically or religiously, get really into your faith or get really into your anarchy or libertarianism or whatever it is, and you will find that the other is very much strengthened as a result. Um, Lou, let's go ahead and talk about uh, your peace of mind today. Well, that's quite a pivot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so I'm going to talk about more of a a local issue, definitely a lefty issue, one that I get all fiery about. Um, I am... How do I say this? Not a fan of the police, right? Oh, I'm trying nice. to say this in a way that, uh, I don't know, doesn't get me on another watch list. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So I don't, mm, yeah. Like I literally had a bullet come through my bedroom window and I didn't call the police because why? What are they going to do? So, <laughs> um, I don't, I'm trying to think. Okay, so last year, I don't know if either of you guys saw the news story. And it, it didn't make national news, but it was sort of at a weird time and it was very quickly overshadowed by bigger national news. Um, and a, a, a gentleman here in South Bend named Eric Logan was shot and killed by police. And I don't remember all of the details of this. It's been... 18 months or so since it happened. Um, but it was, it wasn't a good shoot. Um, and there, it caused a lot of uproar in our community. And I don't, I don't remember feeling so connected to my community. Like I was out marching our streets in South Bend before it became cool. Right. Like, and I know that sounds really terrible, um, but yeah, it was really hard around here and things got, we had uh, Mayor Pete uh, Buttigieg. Yeah, some of you may have heard of, of him. He ran for president. <laughs> uh, that got real hairy after uh, Mr. Logan was shot and killed. And so we have we also have an amazing BLM group here. Um, almost weekly, if not daily, they are holding educational classes. They're doing community events. They're um, going out and doing things with the youth in our city. So they're super active in our community. They're on our city council. They're they're actively working to change things. And one of the things that they really, really pushed um, this past year was to create a citizens review board of our police department, particularly, you know, after Mr. Logan was 
murdered. Um, it has gone around and around and around for months. You know, who was going to be on it? What were the qualifications? How would we do this? And, you know, all of the things that we wanted in our community, someone from our community, a civilian, someone who understood the community's perspective. And unfortunately, what we were served this week was a former Indianapolis Metro police officer who, for some reason, was fired. And I have spent the last 48 hours trying to find the information on this. Everything is either redacted or private or you can't get the information. And I cannot find a news article to save my life other than to say he was fired. So I'm still trying to figure that out. He's not from here. I read through his work history. He's never lived here. Nor was he a civil, he's a former police officer. And he's now the paid by the city director of our Citizens Review Board. And this flies in the face of everything we asked for. Everything we have worked for. Everything we have marched for. Everything we have held these you know, educational seminars about. And I don't, what do you do? What do you do? You feel beaten at this point. You feel like we're getting a civilian citizens review board to make sure that our police are not harming people out, you know, and I, like, this is very personal to me because a year and a half ago at three in the afternoon, my daughter got off her school bus and she wasn't all the way across. Well, she was all the way across the street and had just hit the sidewalk on our side of the street when a police officer, lights and sirens, went 70 miles an hour or faster down our street seconds earlier he would have hit her and killed her and when i contacted the police department to report this and i was told they would not tell me the name of the officer they handled it that was it like no no apology no hey yeah we're gonna not you know, we're, we're going to call off a code zero in residential neighborhoods between these hours because kids are getting off of freaking school buses, right? Our police in South Bend need to be held accountable, and they are not at all. So this guy becoming our director of the civilian or citizens review board is maddening on every level. And none of us feel like any progress we've made over the last 18 months actually did anything. We thought we were getting somewhere. 
one step forward and two steps back. It's so this is a very this is a very legal thing with uh, Lou is not making a supposition that the police don't have an obligation to protect you. They literally do not. Warren v. the District of Columbia is what all this is based on uh, past the Supreme Court. And we have I think there's been like 30 trials since then, and all of them have simply deferred to that single decision. Um, you can read the details of that case, and it is absolutely horrifying. There are women getting raped. They call mm -hmm. 911. The police literally swing by, refuse to get out of the car, and leave. This is they. This happens on multiple occasions. They basically just get raped and raped and raped. It happens for a whole harrowing night. Um, they ask a neighbor to call 911, or they manage to get like a neighbor to call 911. That neighbor ends up getting pulled in, getting raped. Like it's like. And the police did not ch ch knowingly just decided not to do anything. There was, um, I think the dispatcher made like a mistake at one point. Like, I mean, the police actually did swing by. They, he said, looked around, didn't see anything out of place and kept driving. Um, it's an apartment complex. So I don't know what you thought you were going to see from the street, but okay. Um, and then, yeah, at one point the dispatcher like dispatch, like dispatched some, like I sent, sent it as like a non-emergency code instead of an emergency code. But there were multiple instances for them to stop these women from getting raped and they, raped and they chose not to do so. I'm going to go ahead and give you a quote uh, from this decision here. Neither the constitution nor state law impose a general duty upon police officers or other government officials to protect individual persons from harm, even when they know the harm will occur. Police can watch someone attack you, refuse to intervene, and not violate the constitution. So that is the ruling. That's what they go on. That's currently the state of police. Now, I want to throw this out there. Private police or contracted police are required to protect you um, because they've, they have an obligation. This is a service. You pay it for it. It's a, certainly a free market win for me. Um, when I look at this type of thing, when you see that these police have no obligation to protect you and Lou is mentioning instances where they actually can get away with doing significant amounts of damage to you um, and, and harming you and actually making a situation worse. We've seen it over and over and they might get fired out of the benevolence of their heart, uh, you know, out of the, out of their hearts and being like, well, I guess we don't want that to look bad to us, but there's usually very little recourse that we have against the police when they do do these destructive things. I mean, I've just, just offhand seen a police officer, see a chihuahua who's barking, pull out a gun, shoot it, keep walking and just casual as heck. Like, just like nothing happened. Like he's just, this is, this is what I do. I'm totally cool to do this. It's no big deal. Like, and it's a very big deal. Um, police need to be held accountable. They're human beings. There's no reason they should have special rights. Um, it's a system. It's a systemic problem. So the number one <clears throat> thing, so I used to believe this incorrectly, and I wanted to share this before I turn some time over to Sam. I believed that the reason people were convicted incorrectly was because a jury's emotions got played because they just said, oh, we need justice. And I thought that I had to convict this person because somebody needed justice because that family's over there crying. The prosecution seems pretty sure this person did it. I'm going to do this. That's like the fifth most common reason that, that convictions get overturned. 
Number one reason convictions get overturned is because of police and prosecutorial misconduct. They intentionally frame somebody to make it look like they did a crime. They present the fake and erroneous evidence before a jury. The jury is required to believe that information and forbidden from questioning it. In fact, the judge can overrule or heck the lawyers can overrule that you can't question the jury that's in evidence, the, the, ev the evidence that's presented. You are required to act on false information and they get these false convictions. This is the current state of policing in America. Um, you fix it if you feel it can be fixed. If you don't, it needs to be cast into the fire. I am much more inclined to believe that second option because it is just ruling after ruling, decision after decision that they can continue to behave in this way. They are no longer doing the majority of their work protecting and serving. I am not saying that nobody needs to protect and serve. I understand people here abolish the police or you know all cops are bastards and they think of these certain moments where the, a police officer actually did protect and serve. Yes. Uh, okay. Somebody needs to fulfill that role. I'm not advocating for society where we don't protect each other and nobody comes to your help and there's nobody you can call and, and anything like that. I certainly believe in if it's not a service, at the very least, something that neighbors do. Uh, it's funny, the, uh, the original minarchist position, I think, would probably qualify for anarchy today, which is the night watchman state, which is we don't believe in any government unless one of each other, one, one of us gets attacked and then we all attack the attacker. That's kind of the night watchman state, which for me strikes me as kind of remarkably anarchist, but yeah. I digress. I mean, and there's, it's not even like there's like a legal obligation there. That's just like a belief that we have a hierarchy over someone who is committing violence, which is why they called it a state. I'd say I, for me, I don't get too much on the hung up on the hierarchy thing and the anarchy thing. Like you can't have an anarchy without hierarchy. I guess if you do believe that, then I guess it is technically a state and like they called themselves a state, I guess. But yeah, I do believe you have a hierarchy over someone who's attacking you. And I think that's like the very minimum. Of course, can you do more? Sure. Have systems, have businesses, have things that are, this is the reason McDonald's can't poison your food, right? Like if McDonald's poison your food, they get in trouble. If the police, you know, shoot your dog, there's not trouble. I mean, we see police headshot little kids because they were trying to shoot something that they shouldn't have been shooting to be because they were trying to shoot at somebody's dog and they headshot a kid. It's they shouldn't have been shooting at the dog, but now they shot a person and now they're protected because they had a right to shoot a dog. Um, and they probably had a right to shoot at the person too. I mean, you know, if they didn't catch it on camera, that's what it is. I it's mean, there's too much evidence at this point for me to advocate for the current system as it is. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Lynn. No, I was just going to say, like, I know you, you were using this. It's pseudo hypothetical, but I actually remember an article where that literally happened. Oh, I'm, that's a real example. Okay. I wasn't sure if you were being like hypothetical or not because it was kind of vague, but I remember that. Yeah. And it was like, it's the same thing to me. Like, there's no difference between that and what happened to Breonna Taylor. None. You broke into someone's house. They defended themselves and. You shot them back. That's now what police do. I yep. think it's the same. They're, the police, I feel, have come to a point where they culturally feel they are at war with citizens, no longer there to protect and serve. Because at one point in time, it was freaking Mayberry, right? Yeah, they're bringing yeah. the wars to like America. Right, like it's it's 
the police against citizens in their community a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, again, a whole other episode. I got, like, a list of them, honey. <laughs> oh, I absolutely plan on having a police brutality episode. No worries there. <laughs> and I used to work for the sheriff's office. So I got lots of fun input there. <laughs> okay. Well, Sam, what are your thoughts on, uh, um, on this bit? Yeah, I'll, I'll give my thoughts and then I'll play the devil's advocate real quick. Um, I think the entire uh, the entire justice system is just completely rotten to the core. Um, like, was it 95% of cases don't even get a jury? And then, Wait, you know what? You're a righty? <laughs> <laughs> no, I play devil's advocate. Give him a sec here. He's I mean, I'm a libertarian, so yeah. this is, okay. <laughs> but anyway, like 95 percent of cases don't even go to go to trial. They just plead out. Um, yeah, the cops. I mean, let's the the police not only enforce the laws; they need them to exist. So I mean, they're it's structured so that they want the drug war because they want to have jobs, right? And they want. And it's a lot easier to find some punk hippie guy smoking pot than it is to find, you know, be like Sherlock, you know, like some detective finding. Like some Bernie Madoff cold... was doing. That requires a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Or like some cold case, you know, like on TV where they, you know, they oh, just right. worked really hard and yeah. it was 50 years ago, but they arrested that old guy. Like, yeah, that never happens. <laughs> but so, and it's just, it's completely rotten to the core, you know, the, the immunity that the police have that the prosecutors have it's just absolutely insane um i think it's what is it called i listened to just a couple episodes of felony friday and it just like i couldn't couldn't keep listening to more episodes because it was just horrifying to me like i never want to see anything near the justice system and the other thing issue we have is if someone is convicted of something whether or not they're guilty or not we automatically assume that they were probably guilty so like we have this giant skew of you know over here we have everyone who is convicted well they were probably guilty and in fairness they're more likely to be guilty but so we just we if, if someone in from the guilty camp says you know like oh i'm actually innocent we're less likely to believe them we're more likely to believe the cop or something like that so it just skews everything and I think that's a huge problem. So when I hear someone was guilty of something, I try not to make a judgment because, you know, who knows? It could have just been a complete sham. Uh, and then I was going to play the devil's advocate. Oh, yeah. So, like, if you have a plane crash, right, it's extremely rare to have plane crashes. Car accidents are far more common. But if there's a plane crash, everybody hears about it, and it takes up a lot more space in people's minds than would, say, a car crash. Do you think that's the case for like police shooting people or even dogs? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yes. Uh, cause, cause here's the thing, but I think that's, that's fine because here's the thing with, I murder somebody else, right? right. There's more regular murders than there are police murders. But if I murder somebody else, I don't pretend I'm this awesome person who was in charge of a situation. Yeah, that's true. I think the thing is the police are supposed to be in charge. They're supposed to be collected. I mean, these are supposed to be the monopoly. This is the monopoly on violence. You are, you say I am the only one qualified to do this violence right now. So when somebody puts their hands up and, sh and you plug them and you say, I thought it was a gun. Look, your average citizen might be like, mm, yeah, but you're supposed to be the guy who says, Oh no, I I'm quick on the draw. I'm really good at this job. I wanted this job. I fought for this job. I made it illegal for anybody else to do this job. So 
I think that they're kind of unnecessary. You are right, Sam. It does get a disproportionate amount of, of, of attention, but I feel that that's fair. Yeah, that I, I agree yeah. with that. I was thinking too, like the what were you gonna say, Lou? No, uh, I was I was just agreeing. I, I had a thought and then I lost it. Sorry. I yeah, think at so, the very least we can agree it's that like Chris, if there are unprocessed rape kits, if you're giving out tickets on the side of the road, F you, buddy. Like if, if there is one unprocessed rape kit, you should not be doing <laughs> There should not be speed traps, and until I don't want to see oh, one more speeding ticket. Make the money to pay for the rape kids. Nope. <laughs> no. No. You get paid for yeah, by. Nobody's by, believing that shit. Yeah. No. That, that's bull crap. Sorry. Go ahead, Sam. There's that. Now that you've remembered, <laughs> go ahead. No, I haven't remembered yet. It was a good <laughs> thought. Though. It was <laughs> a great thought. Fill some airtime for you. We got you. <laughs> What'd you say? I said we can fill airtime for you because I can oh, okay. talk out my ass for hours. It, it'll, it'll come out. It'll come out. We'll just keep racking up point. examples of police brutality until Sam remembers, <laughs> and then his point is going to come off even worse. No. <laughs> uh, oh, I found it. I remembered oh, it. Oh, okay. Go ahead. I, we. The thing, the, the other thing of police is we just compartmentalize things. Like if the police does something wrong, like if a, anybody else did that, there'd be it be uproar and there'd be consequences and there'd be all these things. And we we tend to put police in this certain little box where it's like, yeah, but they're a police officer. You know, it's their job. They're always in line of duty. It's like, yeah, but the police has no more rights than anyone else. Like I should have every right to defend myself as much the equal rights to defend myself and shoot someone as a cop does. Um, the other thing is like, um, we saw this with, with like the, the fires with the George Floyd and all of that stuff. We didn't see rooftop Koreans like we did when there were rooftop Koreans. And that's because, you know, if you went and you threw some bricks and started a fire, you'd get off on bail and someone would probably pay your bail and, you know, no consequences. But if you defended yourself like a certain guy whose name I will not mention, like then you you get the books thrown at you. So not only so that's kind of why I think some people are like, well, we can't just get rid of the police because they don't realize. Yeah, we also got rid of a lot of the Second Amendment, the right to defend yourself, even if you you know can have a gun. So once we get back to you know you can defend your property and that's admirable and you know looked upon kindly by the law i think that would make huge uh grounds towards you know sort of convincing people also to get rid of the police so i think it's two sides if that makes sense so i i watched the police officers that did the brianna taylor raid they of course their um <clears throat> their body cameras weren't uh, on and functioning during that raid but they actually have one that they were on and functioning in a different raid those same um same officers who conducted the other raid um, and what happened is they jiggled the handle. Of course, they're dead quiet, right? Like sneaking up, you know, they, you know, they jiggled the handle. The one guy gives the symbol, I guess this, right? It's like bash the door down because it's locked. Guy takes the battering ram, smashes it. They all start yelling. The F word is used four times before they ever introduce themselves as police. I'm just... That like they they're like get on the f and like f and, and they're all shouting at once so it's just total mayhem right and then finally after a couple and, and yeah it's seconds but like after like what seems like forever you know after like three or four seconds somebody's like it's the police after first telling them like get the f down shut the f up put your f in hands and they like after everybody's shouting all this at once they finally announce it's the police 
doesn't it make sense? Wouldn't it just be logical self-defense? If somebody, you hear your handle jiggle, you get your gun because you're like, somebody's at, like, I don't, it's late night. Somebody's at the door. Your door smashes in and people start yelling expletives at you. David. And they, right. Lou, this is your subject. So I'll give you the final words on that. But I mean, that's just how I see it. Um, no, I'm, I'm completely with you. Um, that whole thing, you can't break into someone's house at 4 a.m. regardless of what you say. Even if the first freaking words out of your mouth were police. How do I know you're not somebody who just wants all my valuables or has a grudge against me thinking if you say pol- if I say police, like nor am I going to hear the first words out of your mouth because I'm coming out of a stupor at, what was it, 4 a.m. when this happened to Breonna Taylor or something crazy like that? I'm not going to know what's happening. My dogs are going to be barking. There's yelling. There's I'm waking up. I'm not going to comprehend that you are police. I'm going to comprehend there's someone in my house. This isn't right. There's my gun. And I'm going to defend myself. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You cannot expect someone not to defend themselves in their own home. And I say this all the time. Um, and I have a lot of like Democrat or what? Uh, wait, Democrat left friends. Yeah, I had the quotes around the wrong part. Um, you're only a real like you. You have to go left enough and you get your guns back, right? Like, we hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. Marxists said it. Like, you do not ever hand over your guns. Like, you just don't do it, right? That whole thing drives me crazy. You cannot expect someone not to defend themselves if they're in their own home at 4 a.m. You know you're surprising them that's the whole point of going in at 4 a.m right right yeah i've literally been through like training about this and i just don't there's no logic behind it why the logic is all on the person uh, all on the victims in this case yeah i i don't it's why yeah everybody that's been victimized is is like I don't know. Sometimes they're not behaving like completely rational people, but like the cops always manage to one up them in terms of irrationality in these situations. Like well, you did an irrational thing. You, you said you're you were cl- up in your own home at 4 a.m. with lights flashing and people yelling. Right. No. Like, right. Yeah. I mean, that's, you that's have to. It's your own freaking home. Right. It's a wild situation. Sam, give us a piece of your mind, buddy. Oh, man. Mm. Should I talk about the Mises caucus or immigration? Pick one. Either, dude, it's it's all it's all you. All Mises right. caucus uh, is a little bit of insider baseball, but but we've had a whole episode about it before. So I Okay, mean, let's do uh immigration. Um I'm very okay. uh like I like I always tell people like uh I believe in private property, so that means private borders and all of that. But in the absence of private property, I think we should have open borders. Like if the government is going to control the borders, I think they should be open. Uh, that's just always been my my two cents. And one thing that kind of always just irks me about it is when people say, well, you can't have immigration. <laughs> Someone said immigration. Yeah. Uh, 
We chose right, apparently. You chose right. <laughs> yeah, it was just for you. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I I hate it when I'm listening to a podcast and someone will just say, we can't have open borders and uh, the welfare state. And then they'll just move on. It's like, no, like that's just such, that's the oldest argument ever. And it's it doesn't even make sense. And even, you know, like Milton Friedman will just say, let's get rid of him. Uh, well, the welfare state. Uh, so it's like just such a, so I, I always go on, get upset about that. It's like, no, no, no. Like I want to hear sort of the libertarian stance on having borders and all of that, especially, you know, I like, I mostly just listen to podcasts. I don't read. I'm not cool. Like you, Hody, but <laughs> <laughs> like this podcast is pretty great, but like, it's like, just go on. Like, I want to hear a really good argument against uh, immigration. I mean, the welfare state, like we're spending so much money. Why would you look at, you know, like on one hand, a good thing and on the other hand, a bad thing and say, we need to get rid of the good thing for the sake of saving money from the bad thing. It just doesn't make any sense. And then the, the other thing I really, you know, and then the, there, I think it's, um, uh, the Hoppian sort of view of is he sort of, I think compartmentalizes like the difference between, um, cultural protectionism and like um the economy and to me i think of isn't it in a hayek quote where he just says the economy is us we are the economy yeah yeah we are the economy so it to me it's like how you can't separate those two things either you have freedom for like labor and culture and you just allow people to live and you you know if you it doesn't make sense to have these these government enforced borders and, I, you know, I, I also get really upset with what's going on in the borders and especially with what Biden's doing now. It's like so all these and I have a lot of leftist friends who were you know really upset with Trump and really posted a lot about Trump with what's going on in the border. And now that uh, Biden is in, I mean, they've acknowledged it, but there's also a lot of crickets. And it's just like, come on, guys, like this was the, the thing you were good on. This is what the thing we could like unite around is like we really hate what's going on our border we think it's stupid um just you know separating kids from their parents why are we doing that why are we spending so much money on all this and uh you know the other thing is like with crime and immigration like they've um done studies where they've like deported a whole bunch of people in a certain area and the crime stayed the same and um what else Uh, a lot of the the, uh immigrant crime you see reported um it's funny because what you see in the headlines are outliers right and as someone who worked in journalism for many many years if it wasn't an outlier it wouldn't be a headline right right? but it makes people feel like this is a common occurrence and it's you know and it's not and, and then a lot of that, you know, but then they, behind that, will quote the statistics of immigrant crime. Yeah, well, the crime is being here undocumented. Yeah. You know, it's... it's or I like, too, where they're like, immigrants... I like how they're, too, they're like, immigrants are twice as likely to commit a crime, which I don't think they are. They're actually less likely to commit a crime. But I'll just they come are. back at them with, like... Uh, like uh, you know, black people are six times more likely to commit a crime. Like, should we start deporting black people or how about like men versus women? Like, should we start deporting like men or all of this? And 
um yeah it just doesn't make any sense and then a lot of like immigration stuff with the economy and stuff it's like would you apply that to children born in the united states because i mean there's two ways to enter the united states you're either born here or you come in over a border like either way it should have this generally the same impact except as kids of course you're taking more from the system than you would if you come just as an adult and then you take in the fact that like 45% of all Fortune 500 companies are started by immigrants, first or second generation. And it's like that even if there was, we were giving out uh, some amount of welfare, which we give out less to them than we do to uh, average citizens. And of course, they're putting in more than average citizens. But even then, like it would be covered on, under the fact of like just how much wealth they generated through these Fortune 500 companies. So I, yeah. yeah. So those are my thoughts. Sam, I, I got to tell you, okay, minus a couple comments here and there, I think you're more of a lefty than you, you <laughs> are. I might be. I didn't really know how to like, def- I mean, no one knows how to define what is right, what is left. So I, I, think, I like, think Sam's correctly labeled. I think, uh, cause so? I mean, there's definitely a few things I'm like, oh, that's definitely right. But there's a couple <laughs> things I'm like, Hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, if we were to talk about trans kids, Sam's I, feelings would change a little bit, right? Ooh, we could like talk Texas about thing. that. I want to do it on this episode. We're going right, to do it on a whole episode. different episode. All right, all right. I'm just bringing things that I know about Sam that would that would change a little bit. But <laughs> yeah. anyway, well, okay. Go ahead, Luke. Fair enough. Fair enough. No, I... There, there are points of that I definitely agree with, um, and I think uh, the statistics kind of prove it as far as, you know, if you're an undocumented immigrant, you are far less likely to be committing welfare fraud because you don't want to get caught, right? Um, immig- undocumented immigrants uh, pay, oh, I don't remember, it was like $60 billion into the system every year, $62 billion every year and collect i won't say absolutely zero because there are things that they can collect on but the vast majority of benefits that citizens collect they will never collect they do not get social security on the taxes they paid yeah most of them pay social security so they'll just make up a social security number so they pay into the system and then the social security uh whatever doesn't uh pay out because of course it's a fake number and of course the people who work social security don't work with uh, the people who work like the border controls and all of that they don't talk to each other because social security kind of likes to keep their cash not not only that but like pretty much every day you know if they have an over-the-table job right like and in, un, even undocumented immigrants are paying taxes into our system um they will never get back in any benefits even if they're not using a fake social security number you can still have an immigrant id number and be considered an undocumented immigrant uh it's it's uh, same i like with the point you brought up at the beginning that there's a logic issue here do we do we reject the the do we support the drug war until they get rid of government control over health care like, because somebody could overdose and I would have to pay for their health care. And so therefore the government needs to continue the drug war at least until 
we can get rid of, you know, their control in healthcare. No, two wrongs don't make a right. Get rid of one wrong, force them to deal with the consequences with the other wrong, and it that's just the comeuppance. Mm-hmm. I am not under any illusion. I understand if we completely opened our borders up that because currently immigrants, what Lou said, everything is true. That absolutely more more contributions than than even if not more net contributors. I we talked earlier in the episode about how hard it is to be a net contributor. Well, we're all in debt. They contribute much less to the debt than your average American citizen. I mean, and that is, and and that is using statistics that are the most anti-immigrant, like that, that gives them no benefit of the doubt. They're still less of a net debt contributor than your average American citizen. If anything, we're the freeloaders and we need to get kicked out and they need to stay in. If you're going to try to justify it economically, um, I don't like that answer, so I prefer we all stay uh, and we all get to be here. Um, the, the can't everybody just get along? Can't we seriously? Here's the thing: we've created a system, and it, it's right. If we open the borders, there would be several issues that we'd have to contend with. All of those are issues we need to contend with anyway. You know, uh, as far as these like ridiculous ID laws go, as far as taxation goes, as far as property taxes go, you know, all these things kind of fall apart when you open the borders and that's an awesome thing. And we should continue more of that. Um, there, Mises converted Hayek from socialism because of the border issue, because he said, if you feel that you can contain your country and run it perfectly, you are going to have to close your borders. Hayek decided that that was decidedly unethical. And he said, I can't bring myself to control borders because governments don't do a good job controlling borders. They do things like what you see at the border today, what Biden is doing today. What the Biden administration is doing at the border today is as bad or worse than what Trump has done. And at the, and I, I feel comfortable saying that because he's banned more reporting areas than Trump did. You are not allowed to record as much as you are. Of course, yes, there's an influx of immigrants. Guess what? You ran on being cool to these people. Be cool to these people. That's that. That's the bottom line here. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. You know, I, there's a comment here, and I just want to talk about it briefly. Mises believed open borders were an essential feature of free society. It was more people, particularly caucus and institute that bears name, would side with him over half. Okay. I do agree with this. Although I will say the Mises caucus is often pretty cool on borders, um, there's a few of their constituents and I know what you're talking about. Believe me, every time I post something open borders, I, I've mentioned this on prior episodes, I'll get like four or five people from the Mises caucus telling me I'm an idiot. Right. But Jacob Hornberger had an awesome, his ad when he was running for the nomination for president was an open borders ad and it was awesome. And you should check it out. It's still, it's still up around there. Um, about immigrants. It was very, it was very heartfelt and very logical at the same time. It was very concise. It would have been awesome to see that on mainstream TV. And then, uh, I, I mean, you'll see the Mises caucus. They still talk about abolishing ice. They still talk about opening borders. There are of course, a few that feel that they should be government run, but I don't know. I, there's plenty of reasons to fight with the Mises caucus. I feel like to generalize them, I don't want to do that so much. Cause I feel like the split is not I feel like there's probably, I think Jacob estimated 60% are probably open borders. And I would say it's probably even higher than that. But I don't know, just, just Sam, you're actually part of the Mises caucus and it's your idea. So go ahead and give us the th- closing thoughts on that. Uh, yeah. So a lot of them, um, a lot of, like I said, it's, it's never really flushed out a lot of times when, when I'm like listening to podcasts and stuff. So a lot of times it'll just be like, well, I support private borders, not open borders. And it's like, 
and you know, fair enough. Like I support private borders <laughs> over open borders. My, my only, like my, I guess it'd just be a, like a stepping stone is like, well, yeah, but in the meantime, we should op- advocate for just getting like opening them, them up. Yes. You know, like if the, if the government is going to could own something, it should be the as little, do as little as possible. I want the government to do as little as possible with even what it has. So I guess to, to me, that just makes sense, I guess. Um, as far as the, the Mises caucus, yeah, I think, you know, 90, 80%. And, you know, a lot of the people, they, I think they just leap to the, the idea of just private borders, which is fine. I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, like even like Dave Smith, like we, me and Dave Smith agree on private borders. We should privatize everything. So that's kind of, I think we all agree. Yeah. I mean, the nation owning any property and claiming that it's theirs has not helped us with housing costs or national parks or any of this stuff. I mean, created just a ton of problems when they say, no, this is our land. Like I like, this is my land. As soon as you come to, this is our land, but our is the politicians enforcing it how they want that R doesn't feel like I have much of a say in that land anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I want the immigrants in. You're preventing them from coming in. I might even want them into my land, come into my borderized territory. But you're preventing them from doing that. A Uh, bunch of political Satanists. I will say another (laughs) argument that I've heard too is like, um, because I think this is Hopian, and I'm not well-read, so I'm I'm just saying stuff. But... I, I think it's. <laughs> I think the Hoppian view is that because the the government, because we pay taxes and the government is in charge, that the government should sort of do something that we all agree on when it comes to immigration. So, like, it is kind of because we're all paying taxes for this and all of this. It is up to the government, and we don't have private property to decide who comes in and who doesn't. But to me, that's sort of like saying, well, it's. The same as saying, well, that's a private uh, company when they're doing something really terrible. It's like just because in some weird way it makes sense doesn't mean you can't call it out for being wrong. Yeah. You know, like it's just completely wrong. It's like so instead of saying it's a private company, we should be saying like it's a government company. This is stupid. They should not just be doing the ridiculous things they're doing at our borders. If I had my my choice in the market, I would choose differently. Yeah, awesome point, Sam. Lou, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Everybody else who's listening, thank you so much. You're contributing a great deal. Um, I am able to do more of these episodes than ever before, thanks to just listening and downloading this podcast. It's really all you need to do. If you share it with your friends and download it, and they download it too, all the better. I love having these conversations. I look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, everybody stay safe. Thanks for tuning in, and I love you very much. Thanks for having us.